everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Dr. Risa Caparo, a licensed psychotherapist and the developer of somatic learning, a fascinating approach to transforming pain, stress, trauma, and aging into wellness and vital longevity. Dr. Caparo has taught her unique approach to self-healing to individuals and practitioners all over the world, including at many institutions like MIT, New College, I assume that's New College Oxford, uh, JFK University, and China's Dalian Medical University. She's produced a series of CDs and DVDs on somatic learning and has just launched a book called Awakening Somatic Intelligence, The Art and Practice of Embodied Mindfulness. Risa, I am so happy you could join us. Thank you, Miriam. It's my pleasure. I love your Your work is such an interesting mix of psychology, spirituality, and body mechanics. How did you come to develop this particular methodology? Hmm. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, I, I think the best way to approach that answer is really to tell you my own story. And if your readers can imagine being, you know... 20 years old, 18 years old, and, and having your organs literally adhered together because of an internal injury and being in so much pain that you can't move your legs because it pulls apart the scar tissue and still having internal bleeding. And that was really my situation. And I... I really didn't know what to do. I spoke to the surgeons who had told me, you know, I needed to get a radical hysterectomy and still I'd probably lose a fair bit of my colon because of how much my organs were adhered together. And and because I had endometrial tissue now all over, I'd probably still bleed internally at times and, and have mm. pain. The expectation was the rest of my life, and I thought, boy, you know, not only having the loss of ever having children at such a young age, but to be told that I'd probably, after this radical surgery, still be in pain. I thought, what the, you know, there's got to be some other way, (laughs) but I had no idea what to do, and... Mostly all I can think about at that time was how can I get off of all of this pain medication so I can think straight about, you know, what to do. And at that time I relied on something that I had learned in teaching the blind earlier. And um, because I was an artist and I volunteered at the Lighthouse in New York to uh, work with the blind, they gave me a class of um, painting because they just lost their painting instructor and uh, and in sculpture. And I thought, boy, I had so little to offer these people. I began to realize so soon because I worked through my imagination, through images and memory. And so reliant on visual perception, and most of my students were blind since birth. So it really required of me to find something else to be able to engage the students in something that would be meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. And so I spent quite a bit of time blindfolding myself 
and in the experiments, you know, gradually I, I had some glimmers of a different experience that wasn't based on imagination, on memory images and I finally had this breakthrough with my arm where I began to sense it as movements within movements within movements and those movements were responding to my sensing the way like a plant might respond if you put it in the light or something and and I realized oh there was a a different uh, reality that I had mistaken the image object bound experience you know how you look at a distance to me or how I might look in a, in the mirror you know and I somehow had mistaken that image for what that appears object like right at a distance for what was going on at no distance here in my experience and and suddenly it opened a whole different way of knowing myself that I use the term somatic to describe and um, and basically soma comes from the Greek word which we roughly translate as as body in English but it's really not an appropriate epistemic correlate because body in English refers to something that we think of as a third person uh, you know, object like medicine studies the body or you'll rub cream on your body or you, the train moves bodies from here to there or whatever. But in Islam, it's really referring to how life knows itself in that kind of bubbling, bursting, blooming forth of consciousness in the here and now. And that's a very different uh, way of experiencing maybe closer to what one of the four foundations of mindfulness as the Buddha talked about it, knowing the body from the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and the same, though, extends for all the foundations of, of mindfulness to be able to sense, uh, um, sense, feel, know from the inside out experience. And so it opened up this tremendous change in my life because um, when I was sick, I thought, I had a glimmer once that having played with this blindfolded one day when I had a tooth abscess, that I actually was able to dissolve this tremendous explosion that was going on in my head, just allowing the movements to keep unfolding and shape-shifting and opening and inviting more space through and receiving it and opening to the experience. And eventually, boom, it, it, it unraveled, you know, it felt like somebody pulled a knife out of my eye and then my ear settled down and finally my tooth and, and I, my head cleared from this feeling that was kind of explosive. And so I relied on that just trying to get out of pain enough to be able to think about what I should do with my life. And as it turned out, quite to my surprise, frankly, that what I did not only took me out of pain, but actually dissolved the adhesions and stopped the internal bleeding and began to regenerate my organs, which I've been told, you know, my tubes and, you know, pelvic inflammatory were completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. So the, one of the reasons they wanted to take out the disease and in um, the source of so much infection was that, you know, my organs were never going to serve me anyway. And actually, years later, I wound up naturally conceiving, naturally birthing 
my daughter, who is 19 years old now, uh, a beautiful young woman, and and all of that came from being able to follow through this awakening of somatic intelligence in my own system, and then of course. Later, I, I frankly, I had been an artist up until that time, and afterwards, I never got to really go back to art because people would come and say, "God, I heard you healed yourself from this, and you know, can you help me with?" And and before I knew it, I was full time <laughs> engaged with helping people in healing, and and the perception, how we perceive experience, became what I was interested in as an artist, not the object of art, but, but actually um, our experience of how we know ourselves and interact with everything. And eventually I then went back for degrees in, in psychology, looking at how our state of consciousness affects our organismic functioning and, and vice versa, which was really kind of groundbreaking work in 1980 when I got my doctorate it, uh, to begin to look at that relationship of, of organismic functioning and, and, um, and consciousness. I'll, I'll bet you were kind of a voice in the wilderness at that time. Yes, <laughs> I sure was. It's interesting that um, I've been getting so many books and uh, about the application of consciousness to create physical change within the body. And this is something that you were observing, you know, 20, 30 years ago. It's taken so long to get here, hasn't it? Yes. Yes. Um, at the time, yeah. it was difficult to even broach that subject. Mm. Luckily... Um, there were schools like I began teaching at uh, JFK University uh, in their School of Consciousness Studies. So there were places that were beginning, but they were far and few between um, to you know that sought out this kind of knowledge yeah. and, and experience. Yeah. How do you define your your methodology is called um, somatic learning, and your book is called somatic intelligence? Um, combining the two words, you're saying that the the body has its own intelligence. Can you define this for us? Because it's not immediately um, intuitive. Yes, yes. So somatic, uh, I I just defined a moment ago as, um, and so when I use somatic intelligence, I mean, one way to think about it is, is something like how we think about emotional intelligence, you know, that as people, um, are able to identify and assess and self-regulate their emotions, um, they are able to be much more, um, uh, you know, to enjoy much healthier relationships and resolve conflicts and feel much more nourished by a sense of belonging and connection. Um, but if they fail to do that, then they may feel like they're living a life of that's impoverished in the sense of by a sense of helplessness or disconnect or so forth. And in the same way, when people develop this intelligence that is native to us. Uh, however, we've learned to 
through our conditioning, basically ignore the signals. It's like we've been born into the most finely tuned feedback system that's ever been imagined. And yet, basically, most of our conditioning has been just to ignore all of the signals there rather than to learn from them to become ever more self-sensing, self-organizing, and self renewing through the way that we become more coherent in response to whatever's going on in the present. And, but, you know, kids go to school and they're told, you know, just sit still and watch what's going on in the board or listen to the teacher. <laughs> it's like, don't pay any attention to any of the signals or impulses or <laughs> feelings or needs or, you know, that are going on here and learn to extend your presence through them. But just keep paying attention to what's going on out there. That's what's important. And we develop then this outside-in way of relating to ourselves as well. It's also and a question of control, isn't it? We want to control, be in, be in control of our bodies as opposed to listening and experiencing them. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I know, my so, husband is English. It's a fine <laughs> art there. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, it is indeed. Um, so when people do uh, engage their somatic intelligence, the, these miraculous powers that I was just mentioning that I described as the three primary characteristics of somatic intelligence that you're self-sensing, self-organizing, self-renewing, they, they um, emerge really unleashing this natural capacity of the body-mind to heal itself and to be continuously in a process of transformative learning and change that it's leads to a profound sense of wellness and ease and, and heightening, enhancing the joy that we have in life. We know that lizards can regenerate tails, but it's less known that we can actually regenerate as well. Um, how uh, I remember reading the work of Robert Becker on the, the body electric, um, and there's something about the electrical fields or the the, the possibly even the, the morphogenetic field of Sheldrake that enables us to generate. But what is it that kind of kicks us into regenerating mode, in your opinion? <clears throat> it's interesting because I do quote Robert Becker's research in my book because it's fascinating what he, what he refers to in in the research Basically, the more that we can come into a place of differentiating, um, like for instance, in human beings, like you might have a slight injury and it's been a huge evolutionary advantage for us to be able to lay down scar tissue, you know, so that within, even within 24 hours, we can oftentimes mend tissue that's been torn enough to be able to use it, um, let's say a muscle or <clears throat> a ligament or tendon, to be able to move. I mean, when we were being chased by lions and tigers and bears, you know, that's a tremendous advantage. <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to be somebody else's dinner. Um, however, at this point, um, we also have the capacity to to start um, to with 
less differentiated cells and for the cells to differentiate themselves into, for instance, ligament tissue and form a quite a seamless repair in our uh, organism that isn't just like scar tissue has this quality of being, you know, it's kind of like darning a sock, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you pull it, you'll notice it doesn't have the same elasticity as the rest of the knitted fabric, right? So mm -hmm. that we tend to, uh, it tends to pull, pull apart, right, where that seam is. Um, and, uh, and also the clump of these uh, collagen fibers and so forth tend to create inflammation around that, so it becomes a source of ongoing inflammation in the system. We have tendinitis or um, things like this appear. And so if, for instance, for your listeners, one thing you can do to begin to generate uh, regenerate tissue in a situation of the, an injury and really in this situation I want to underscore the importance of the first 24 to 48 hours because that's how fast the scar tissue lays down and um, is to do tiny little micro movements non-weight bearing movements that aren't going to stress the tissue but will be enough to keep the scar tissue, kind of keep breaking down the scar tissue as it's forming, which will allow the body time to begin the process of regenerating the tissue that you actually had injured and um, so that you can get a full repair. And to keep that movement, you know, every few minutes to just a tiny little bit of movement through the area, even your intention sometimes is enough. Um, and when I work with, for instance, people who are paralyzed to bring back movement through the system um, with a spinal cord injury or something like that, it's so critical that they intend the movement that we're that I'm facilitating in them because that intention alone is what's keeping their, them their muscles, for instance, from atrophying. Mm -hmm. I, the therapist can move them all day, but unless they're intending the movement, <laughs> the tissue doesn't respond. And I'll say one more thing about this without trying to get too far along this uh, line, but what's interesting about this is that the way that the uh, neural tissue regenerates is very different than how it develops you know, in utero. In utero, of course, we have the development of the nervous system and or the nerves and then the myelination of them and then the function happens last uh, once the myelination is fully accomplished. And that's why, for instance, when babies are born, they can't see clearly because we don't need visual perception in the womb and so, uh, and the brain would be way too big to come out through our, you know, woman's pelvis if, if the visual cortex myelinated. So we actually born not creating too many enzymes uh, to digest food, so we have to keep suckling, suckling, suckling. And the one thing that we can see is a face about the distance, you know, 10 to 12 inches, which is the distance between the breast and the face. And so the baby has to suckle continuously, which also develops the respiratory system. But as they're doing that, they're actually beginning to my, you know, come into a fuller and fuller myelination of the visual cortex. And eventually, once that cortex is myelinated, 
and they can see clearly. They develop all kinds of enzymes so they can digest other food. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a fascinating thing. So when we regenerate uh, neural tissue, what happens is that we, um, we have an a priori of function over form. Um, and that's fascinating. It's like if you can get signal to go through what neuroanatomists often call a ferromagnetic domain, kind of like an energy circuit freeway <laughs> that, that's running down. And if you can keep those signals running down, it is what will draw the myelin to actually grow around where these signals are, are traveling. And then the last thing that happens is the nerve grows into that sheath. Um, and so this gives you a sense of the power of uh, mindfulness or the power of our awareness to, um, to actually radically enhance our capacity for regeneration and renewal. That is so fascinating. I remember reading a study um, where uh, researchers found that just um, practicing um, an exercise in your mind uh, gave you almost as good results as people who actually physically did an exercise. Yes, yes. And in fact, uh, we definitely have seen that, um, and we've seen a change in MRIs as well mm -hmm. in terms of same parts of the brain that people will have as much change in brain activity in the, the, you know, the areas that, you know, Donald Hemp, the Canadian uh, psychologist, his famous words that neurons that fire together wire together, mm -hmm. that you know, the brain is actually happening and it doesn't matter whether they're, they're performing the activity or not. And in various cases, it actually behooves you not to. Um, a lot of training, for instance, for athletes is uh, to use visualization because they can train so much more and they're not as likely to practice their mistakes um, if they're working with fine um, idiokinetic movement, imagining it, and then uh, letting that start to create a response through the tissues in relationship, in a more coherent relationship to how they're seeing uh, that movement. Mm -hmm. so yes, there's a question that uh, mindfulness is very powerful in that regard. If you've just joined us, you're listening to New Consciousness Review, and we're speaking with Dr. Risa Caparo about her book, Awakening Somatic Intelligence. In reading the book, I, I was struck by how very subtle <laughs> the, the, the movements are and, and the whole process is. You, you talk about proprioception and you, you, you talk about, um, I can tell that you're a poet because you use such beautiful imagery and it's it's kind of you kind of get sucked into the flow of your words um so you you talk about sensing from the inside out that's mm -hmm. how, how how do people actually learn to do that okay i i 
you know, there's a number of ways that I could answer that question, but one possible way I could do that is to take um, the listeners through a small somatic meditation right now as just one example of that, as something that they can do, or give a couple of examples of something that they can do. And maybe I can start by prefacing this by with the story of uh, one of my clients who had come to me severely traumatized. He was a CEO of a very large company but uh, that he had started himself, but he had um, gone to his orthopedic surgeon for an injection, a cortisone injection in his neck uh, for neck pain. And in the process of getting the injection and then rotating his neck quite far to try to get the injection to have its maximum impact, they actually um, partially severed the spinal cord. And oh, my God. He became uh, paralyzed on one side. They rushed him into surgery. And after the surgery, he still had very limited uh, movement, and he was in tremendous pain. And so when he first came to me, you can imagine how terrified he was, <laughs> afraid that anything might, you know, make it worse. And uh, and really afraid that the paralysis might return, and so at first it was very difficult for us to work in almost any like he could hardly sit for a few moments, and then there was so few positions he couldn't lie on the table, and you know I mean, there was just so many things that were going on, and yet we were able to use the same very simple and, as you described, very subtle somatic learning practices, what we call somatic meditations that you'll find in the book. Um, but to learn to, um, just through his breathing and his sensing, to begin to release the pressure and extend the spine and relax the rigid holding in his body, which then relieves the pain, and, and then to learn to move in ways that didn't re-trigger the pain so that the fear of making things worse began to relax and he began to trust his own sort of movement to be able to reorganize around it. And when he recovered all his movement, he wanted to go back to some of his extreme sports. And I, and his my, his um, spinal cord hadn't completely remyelinated yet. And I suggested, how about taking up tango? <laughs> so, <laughs> until and at least I can, you know, give you some, you know, I mean, <laughs> some clues about how not to injure yourself in doing it. And it turned out he fell in love with tango. Now he literally travels around the globe dancing with some of the best dancers in in the world. And it came from these very very subtle um, movements. I've even found people who are bedridden. Sometimes I've just sent, uh, you know, one of the videos to, and they've watched the videos in bed and just done what they could do lying in their bed. And uh, people have been able to get out of bed who hadn't been out of bed for long periods of time and come in to take a real training after. Mm -hmm. um, so this, it, you know, it's funny. One of my mentors was David Bohm, uh, the theoretical physicist. Uh, you may be familiar with his work, which I think is so ingenious. 
Um, and he often talked about the power of the most subtle levels of reality, what he called the implicate order. And the subtler you go or the more implicate you go, the more power you have for transformative learning and change to occur. Mm. So I might give you, if you think that it would be of interest, maybe something simple that people might be able to try now and then maybe some recommendations about how they might apply that kind of thing in that to keep engaging their somatic intelligence. Absolutely. Go for it. Let's go for it. So one of the things that I like to encourage people to do is break what I call the synesthesia between um, visual perception and proprioception, or proprioception meaning basically in the most basic level how we sense through our tissues. And one of the problems is that we're so visually dominant in our culture is that we don't realize that we use our visual perception where it's really not that uh, appropriate. In other words, if I ask people to start to sense what's going on <clears throat> uh, in terms of movement or or even like if I ask you right now to sense wherever you're sitting, you know, to notice how your weight is distributed, uh, to notice the imprint you're making on the ground wherever you're coming in contact and the areas that aren't coming into contact, how you feel the kind of tensional pattern of what's holding you upright, um, basically asking you to, to feel your relationship to gravity. And usually people start by visualizing the body as an object, you know, and, and, um, and eventually we can come into, but it's a good starting place now to just get a sense of, okay, if you have that as a reference, now I might suggest, unless you're driving, uh, you might want to draw in, imagine a horizon as far as you can see. And that you can do while you're driving, but of course keep your eyes uh, open. Um, but if you look as far as you can uh, in front of the road, and then begin to see that horizon coming towards you so that you're receiving it through your eyes. And if you're at home, you might want to just close your eyes and really let, like if you can imagine a sun rising, um, let that light begin to saturate through your closed lids and through the space of your skull and actually come to warm the back wall of your skull. And, and now um, you might even open uh, the eyes slowly, and, but without grasping with the eyes just letting the light come in, almost like you're opening the shutters of an Italian villa and just letting the light begin to saturate the room and you're just receiving that light. And you might even then open a window through the back wall of the skull and let the light pour right through your skull. And you might notice that if you have reopened your eyes that the head First of all, that you might have a much broader peripheral vision than you did before, and that the head may begin to float very much like a floating head doll, 
um, atop the neck rather than being held muscularly by the surface muscles of the neck, right? And, and that you might have a much different uh, way of seeing that has a quality of soft focus without grasping. Hmm. And so I'm not sure, Miriam, if you got to do it while you're interviewing me, but um, I'm curious if you did, if you can feel a different relationship of the head to the rest of the, the spine and um, the way that the head floats. Well, I certainly uh, tried many of the practices as I was reading through the book, and I was really fascinated with the play of gravity, uh, particularly the, the, the anchoring exercises. And I found that it totally transformed how I stood and how I, um, you know, I moved from sitting to standing, which has actually been, been a problem for me. And even, even this subtle thing of imagining your sacrum anchored, and then gravity pulling you up instead of e efforting to come up was just amazing. That, that's why I was so excited to talk to you today. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. I'm glad you mentioned this to the readers because I love the fact that we can use the feedback we get from living in the field of gravity. Um, if I can just say a few words about that for, for the listeners who haven't read the book. Um, I talk about transforming your relationship to gravity because most of us have an adversarial relationship to gravity. We're constantly fighting gravity to hold ourselves up, and then we're using all of our own muscular uh, work to locomote ourselves like an object moving through space mechanically. And what happens with an awakened somatic intelligence is that the mechanical really becomes magical <laughs> because we're able to present so much space. Because gravity is drawing us to the center of the earth and the ground is breaking our fall, there's an opposing force that's rising up. And the more that we can sense the sort of change in the center of gravity as we move, the more we can begin to feel this interpenetration. We sort of feel ourselves much more like a convergence of rivers um, in, in relationship to the ground and in relationship to space. And so we can allow ourselves to reorganize what we are here now and now and now, which allows us to come into these uh, cycles of learning so that there's uh, more lower tension then in the structure because we don't need that tension to hold ourselves up. And then that's leading to much more efficient motion, um, which then leads to um, much greater sensitivity of variation. Um, there's a law of psychophysiology called the Weber-Fresner law. And basically what the law says is that the higher the initial stimulation to any of our sensing. It um, doesn't matter, taste, touch, uh, sound, you know, um, sight. The lower the sensitivity we have to variations therefrom. So, and, 
And so you, we've all had that experience, right, of coming, as say, out of a tunnel, and and we don't even know anymore that our bright lights are on or something because there's so much sunlight. In that light, we can't see our car lights. But if we're in a really darkened room um, and we light even a match in one corner of the room, we can sense the glow all throughout the room, right? So mm-hmm. the con is also true that the lower the initial stimulation, the higher the sensitivity from there. So, you know, muscular tension is a form of stimulation. It's like, you know, through our tissues. And the higher that level of stimulation, meaning what we call a tonic contraction, the amount that the body is contracted when we're at rest, right, the higher that level is, um, the less sensitivity we have to variations. That's why people sometimes they'll talk on the phone and then they'll realize that you know their hand is falling asleep because they've been gripping the phone with so much tension, <laughs> or their neck is tightening up, or maybe they didn't even notice that, but now they've got a stiff neck later on in the day after talking on the phone so much because the movement, the holding the phone isn't happening with uh, an ease and efficiency. We're using so much more tension than we need to. So those cycles of habituation that leaves high residue of tension because we don't sense the difference anymore, so we tend to not release the tension and then we keep moving less and less efficiently. And so that habituation, that closed system, leads, of course, to more and more degeneration and entropy. Um, uh, Conversely, the more self-sensing we are in relationship to our connection to the ground, the more the ground we're receiving the support rising up from the ground, the more that's shaping us in the moment and allowing renewing our energy and we're actually um, in a constant state of renewal. So I like to give people the sense that as you learn to move through space with this beautiful ease and grace, you not only are doing that in terms of developing a new relationship to gravity, but you're developing a new relationship to aging. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to wait until you get there to find out you've been on the wrong road. <laughs> you know, I, I think this friend of mine used to live in the Bay Area, and he used to play uh, piano in a, uh, like a, a bar, uh, I don't know, at night, you know, a, a club. And... <clears throat> He'd come home so tired that he'd often miss the difference between like 580 and, and 80 and, and an hour later realize, oh my God, I'm in Sacramento. <laughs> and I turn around, you know. But at that moment when the freeways move apart, you know, it's, it's only, you know, just the slightest, barest, you know, incline toward one side or the other. But an hour later, you're either in San Francisco yeah. or in Sacramento. And so if we can begin to to learn from the feedback, to sense where we are and how to respond in a way that is moving with ease and grace and allowing the system to maximize its capacity for learning and regeneration, and um, then we can begin to reverse the deteriorating effects that we usually associate with aging that really don't have anything to do with aging. <laughs> it's just really this process of habituation and degeneration that's really entropic. 
I'm reminded of the quote from Mae West, apropos of gravity and aging. She said, I have everything that I had 20 years ago. It's just all a little bit lower. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So you, um, you were talking about you know the the stresses and the that we embody with the tensions you you mentioned in your book um peter levine's work with embodied trauma you know the the somatization of of trauma in fact i interviewed his his co-author on freedom from pain just um a couple of months ago i listened to that yesterday oh, you did <laughs> Really lovely interview, and I would recommend their book um, to your listeners. Um, I think it is a great compilation of practices for uh, reducing pain and and trauma. And it's beautiful, of course, the way that uh, they make the correlation that many people still haven't, even in medicine, being chronic pain. Miriam, I mean, it's such a problem in the United States alone. We have 116 million people suffering from chronic pain. And these I are know, and the all people. we can offer them is drugs. Right, right. And as I was telling you my own story, I mean, there's so many negative effects from the medication that um, it, it sometimes we then compound the problem more. And so it's so important for people to, to, for us to begin to learn solutions. And so I love the fact that they also, uh, came out with a book, um, that really looks at how to use mindfulness type practices, somatic practices to transform pain. And, um, there's a practice that I can tell your listeners right now that um, I often, like I give a talk on, you know, 10 ways to engage your somatic intelligence now and throughout the day. <laughs> and, um, and so that people, even if they never read my book, <laughs> you know, they never come to a workshop or training or whatever, that they can already begin to, to realize some of the benefits right away. So what are your and, top three ways? Uh, my top three ways, well, one of them uh, related to pain is, um, this practice that is is a quality of easing in to intense experience, and I often will ask people to visualize that they're you know um, coming into uh, a warm bath, and oftentimes if we step into that bath quickly, we find our whole system contract right because we're all hot, um, and and yet if we slowly kind of begin again, maybe put one toe into the water, it may feel pleasant to our toe and maybe we stir it in the water and slowly we ease. This would be like what Peter Levine talks about in terms of titration of of slowly opening our experience but so that eventually we might find that we can relax deeper and deeper and almost lean into it. Maybe the way sometimes you see a cat lean into the stroking mm-hmm. to enhance the quality of um, of enjoyment. And until we're completely immersed in the experience and there feels like there's so much space, that's often a clue, this quality of spaciousness. 
And so if people are suffering from pain, that's one thing that they can do, like right now, um, that will change their whole experience and not just, you know, how they experience pain, but may actually dissolve the pain entirely. Um, If they don't, uh, another practice that I would suggest is what I call differential relaxation because many people don't really, they can't tell what they're doing, you know. It's like we brace against the pain and and uh, we don't realize that that bracing that we do to sort of protect ourselves from the experience is actually um, exacerbating mm-hmm, the experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so in order to get a sense of that, um, sometimes if you can just imagine that you've turned your pain like it's, it's now it's going through like an amplifier and you can turn it up the whatever get a sense of what the level is of the discomfort right now maybe one to ten and uh, maybe you're at a seven or something and and then you might see if you can uh, for just a brief moment turn it up just one little increment so now you're amplifying what you're doing the whole pattern of tension in your system by one small increment Mm -hmm. and uh, and then hold it for a moment to see what changes in the whole body mind uh, the whole experience that you're having what changes in your breathing what changes in your tension what changes in your feeling and so forth and you might um, if it's still not totally clear, you can go up one increment and then slowly, gradually bring it down. Mm-hmm. And as you bring it down, um, you might find that, and not all at once, not try to let go of everything, but now that the nervous system has recognized more of what it is doing that is um, amplifying the pain, then it can begin this process of undoing Mm -hmm. rather than doing. Because usually when people try to release, they wind up doing something else (laughs) rather than undoing what they are doing. Well, you know, I want to tell the readers that we've only been able to touch on the surface of this book. I mean, you give you give these practices, the morning practice, the evening practice, the pouring. I, I love your imagery of like pouring your your bones matrix like salt through your joints and things. There is so much richness in this book. I really want to commend it to anybody who has any kind of chronic pain or who wants to avoid degeneration in their lives, in their bodies. Um, you only have to look at Risa's photograph to know that this works. People, she's been working at it for over 30 years. She's a PhD and she looks like a fashion model. Now, Risa, where do they go to learn more about somatic learning? The best place really would be my website. Uh, if you go to somaticlearning.com, mm-hmm. and in fact, if they um, they want, they can get on our mailing list for 
like blogs on new practices all the time. Some of them are video, some audio, some written. Um, in fact, if they sign up for that, they'll also get a free introductory video on somatic learning that might give them a better felt sense. Um, and there's other resources like trainings for professionals that we do, and um, there are workshops at Cropalo, at Esalen, at various places around the country. There are uh, practitioners that people can see uh, because we can work also locally and non-locally, at least half my practice now. I do on Skype, which is so wonderful because I can work with people all over the world, and it's, mm-hmm. it's and things I love about that is that they, because they're alone in the room with their own experience, they realize that everything that's happening, all the transformative learning and change, all the healing they're experiencing is happening from their own, from the inside out, because they can't really put it on someone else. They're there having experience in the room by themselves, and I love that. Um, So anyway, there's lots of resources. Uh, The the book is, the cheapest way you can get the book is also available through the website, and um, as well as CDs and companion DVDs and so forth. It's interesting. I was thinking when I was reading the book that I really need to record it so that I can listen to it while I'm trying to do the practices. But it seems that you've already done that. I've already done that. And uh, I have, uh, for instance, the walking and standing practices. Uh, You can get a CD or download it on your iPod and and so that you can have it with you anywhere. And um, there's a new... You have another website, awakeningsomaticintelligence.com. Which is the better one to go to? Like learning, actually, the, is is the one the updated one. The other will transfer into it, um, and and so that's fine. But we decided it's at least one word shorter. Right. <laughs> uh, so somatic learning is the practice that I developed to help people awaken right. somatic intelligence. Okay, so somaticlearning.com. Yes, and very soon, Miriam, we're going to have. Um, soon to be released, brand new companion DVDs um, for the book that have uh, the practices in the book and more. And the reason why they've taken us a little longer is that we've had all kinds of animations done and to really help people get um, as clear a felt sense of how to perform these subtle movements and breathing and differentiating their experience so that they can sense movement where they'd only experience themselves mm-hmm. higher. As, but I, also, I think that will be awesome, and I hope you will send me one. Okay. All right. When? when uh, yes, I'd be happy to. Okay. Great. Well, unfortunately, the time has flown by. I can't believe it. And I want to thank Dr. Risa Caparo for being with us today and discussing her book, Awakening Somatic Intelligence. Risa, thank you very much. Thank you, Miriam. My pleasure. Goodbye. Many blessings to all of your listeners. Have a beautiful day. Thank you. Now we're going to close the show with a track by Up With People called Cause We Sing a Song of Peace.
song of peace when they're knocking down the doors. Can you hold an olive branch? Hang on to what is yours. To the weapons that destroy. Go to join the dinosaurs. Will there still be hope at least if we sing a song of As we sing a song of peace by Up With People. They've been the positive voice of young people since 1965, coming together to deliver a common message of hope and goodwill to people around the world and to pursue their own global education and personal growth goals through service, music, and travel. To find out more about their music, go to upwithpeople.org. Well, I hope you'll join us next week and do visit our website, ncreview.com. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.